If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and to say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, I am super stoked about our conversation today with Kevin Dean because we are going to be talking about the importance of including pay scales and pay information when we post positions that we are looking to fill. Let me just start by telling you a little bit about Kevin. Kevin Dean is the chief executive of Momentum Nonprofit Partners, which is a regional nonprofit association based in Tennessee that seeks to build momentum of the nonprofit sector by creating equitable, measurable, and lasting change. I have to share with you any association that has that as their primary mission, I'm already down with. So clearly, I was excited about getting Kevin to come on the podcast. Kevin, in addition to currently being the CEO at Momentum Nonprofit Partners, has been a chief executive elsewhere, has done fundraising. I will share with you, was just named by Memphis Magazine as one of the CEOs of 2022, and also holds a doctorate in organizational leadership from Vanderbilt University. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So I kind of want to start by asking you, what was your aha moment about posting salary ranges? Well, it was it was a long time coming, but I had a friend who was looking for a job and actually went to our, our job board. And this was sort of already on my radar, but, you know, it, it really drives it home when you have somebody calling you and shouting at you. <laughs> um, and he, and deservedly so, he had uh, gone to our job board. He'd applied for a job. He had a master's degree in social work, and he was still paying off those student loans, as you can imagine. Went through four interviews, uh, took off work to do those interviews. Went One of them was, I think, three or four hours. So he got all the way through the interview process, and they never really discussed the salary. It was never posted. And then they came back with an offer, and it was Basically, he could probably he could probably be an Uber driver and make more money doing, you know, a gig job like that. So, you know, he was upset. I got that phone call and, and, and felt really bad that I was perpetuating a problem, you know, by not implementing those policies. 
And so we, we started looking around at, at other nonprofit associations around the country. There were maybe one or two others that had that, you know, a salary requirement. And this is before a lot of the laws, you know, like New York and California, they have these laws in place now. Um, but this is before that had really happened. And so we not only wanted to be sort of the, on the forefront of that, uh, we added, in addition to you have to disclose the salaries of whatever you post on our job board, you also have to, it has to be over $15 an hour. Because another thing that we found was that people were posting jobs for seven fifty an hour or minimum wage jobs in poverty fighting organizations, which is really hypocritical. So we didn't want to be part of the problem anymore. So we made those changes. And then we've, we've actually added to that from there, the salary ranges now have to be a certain limit. We had a couple of folks trying to go around the game, the system and uh, have salary, salary ranges that were $40,000, $50,000 for smaller jobs. So, and, and real quick, Kevin, when you say range 40000 $50,000, do you mean, so for example, we'll pay between $50,000 and 100000 or what do you mean? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Not like a three hundred thousand to three fifty. This is this is under a hundred thousand dollar jobs that had these crazy pay ranges. It was one of those things. We had done some. We had done another sort of big shift at our organization uh, a few weeks prior. We got no press on it, and we did this. I thought this was just like this was us working towards our mission and trying to model the way. And uh, I didn't think that it would get national press. Well, we got local press, and then suddenly we're in nonprofit quarterly. We're in you know nonprofit times. And I'm being asked to speak on this subject, of which I was not an expert, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to do the right thing, you know, and I think our staff really wanted to do the right thing. So it, it really built a lot of momentum, pun intended. So now here I am four years later, talking to you about it still. It's now something that, that I know a lot about because uh, I've talked a lot about it and people have looked to us and, and really wanted to copy what we did. So now if you go to a lot of these nonprofit associations, job boards, and I can't take complete credit for this because I think one or two other organizations have done it before us, but uh, because we got so much press about it, they're asking how we did it, where challenges were, you know, what the benefits were, all that. So I'll also share with you, and obviously we're, we're going to talk about the equity piece. I, I know you started off with, you know, your friend who was like, okay, this was a waste of my time. I took, I took time off work and this waste of my time. And we're definitely going to talk about the equity piece. And I know you want to, because I know like me, you're really committed to equity and I know that. But it's funny to me, though, also from the employer's perspective, it keeps me as an employer from wasting my time, too, so that I'm not talking to great candidates going, oh, my gosh, we might get Kevin to come work here. And then, you know, we get all the way down the road and we're ready to make the offer. And Kevin's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm currently making $50,000 more than that. We are in the middle of the Great Recession. Or, I'm not recession. Great resignation. resignation. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's already getting inundated with with job applications. Why make that harder for yourself, you know, and why, why go through a whole process and have your staff, your board go through this process that's going to end up wasting your time and you have to start all over. Because I, I know, I know that that has happened with, with nonprofits that I've heard from where they just had to start all over because they lost not one, but all of their top candidates. And also when you post that, you do get feedback. It creates a feedback loop and it tells you if your, if your salary range makes sense or not. Because if you're not getting a lot of applications, especially during this time in our history, something something is off and, and you should really listen to the crickets <laughs> that you mm -hmm. might, you know, uh, hear when nobody's applying. I will also say to the point of your friend who took hours, including time off work, I have always believed that, and let me, also, let me back up and say, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in 
a lengthy vetting process because it gives the candidate an opportunity to get to know you and vice versa. Um, so I'm a huge, huge believer in that. But I also think unless we're talking a chief development, chief executive, chief financial officer type position, that we as the organization, as the potential employer, need to be paying those candidates that are going all the way through the process. You might not get paid for that first screening interview, but if you end up in the funnel where you're doing an assignment and there's going to be a series of interviews and this is going to be five or six hours, you know, you, you need to be paid for that, not as a W-2 employee, but certainly as a 1099 contractor. I actually have personal experience with that. Years ago, I was asked, I'm, I made it to the final round and I was asked to give a presentation to the, the selection committee. It was, it was going to be a 30-minute, 40-minute presentation and they weren't going to pay me for it and i thought that was just a huge red flag that they're asking me to do work for free you know especially it was a it was a poverty fighting organization there was a mismatch there and it was a huge red flag and i uh bowed out very quickly um because i was like nope nope this is this doesn't even align with my values and you know i i was okay with them going through the process and not paying me although i i am now with you i think we should be paying folks to to interview Right. Right. Absolutely. Now, now let's talk about the equity piece. And I certainly understand the, the equity reason why we should all be posting salary ranges, but please, you know, share, share with our friends and listeners why that's so important from an equity standpoint. Sure. When I talk about my job interview and my salary negotiations, I'm talking about it as a, as a white male and a place of privilege. My negotiation process and even like going in hard um, to get what I want is going to be viewed as, wow, he's a, he's a real go-getter. He's a real, you know, he really knows how to negotiate. He's going to be great in this role. That is not necessarily true for people who don't look like me or are, are the same gender as me. If I was a woman and I was doing the exact same thing, there's going to be a very different view of who I am as a person, that I'm going to be uh, a problem, that I'm going to be dramatic or, or whatever, whatever misogynistic ascriptions you can apply. Research has shown that that happens all the time. So some of your listeners might say, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, it happens, you know, and it might happen without you knowing it yourself. And, and so if you're a person of color, and if you're a person of color and a woman, I might go in hard as I should to get what I want as a new employee. But if a black woman does the exact same thing, then there's the angry black woman trope that is so often overused, they're going to be punished for that, whereas I'm going to get lauded for it. That's not fair. That's not right. And we can do something about it very easily by, by just having a standard salary. Um, at Momentum, we, we don't even have a negotiation process. We have a salary um, and we have tiers of salary. So if you're a manager, you make this much. If you're a director, you make this much. That makes it really easy on me, but it also makes it easy on our on our staff. It makes it easy on the interview process. Uh, bias creeps in in weird, weird, weird places. It weird, creeps in with me sometimes, and I have to check myself. And you know, sometimes other people have to check me, uh, and I do my best. But bias is always going to be there. And if we can eliminate as much of it as possible in this process, then we should. There is a there is an ought to <laughs> built into this. I'm so grateful that you that you shared that reason around ways that it perpetuates inequality. There's another way that I also really see it happening as well. And you know, so, so in addition to people who have traditionally been oppressed and discriminated against, their negotiation being perceived 
differently, especially if they're negotiating hard, it also perpetuates an individual's historical economic inequality. And so if I belong to a group that, you know, gosh, and by the way, this is not even made up here. You know, if I belong to a group that traditionally makes 60 cents on the dollar, you know, to, you know, folks in another group. Well, if in the negotiation I'm asked, well, what are you currently making? And I say, oh, I'm making $60,000. It's why some states like New York will not allow you to ask a candidate that question. But if you're not posting a range, you know, so let's say you're planning to pay between 90 and 100, and I disclose, oh, I'm currently making $60,000 a year. Suddenly, as an employer, you're thinking, oh, yeah, we don't have to pay 90, even though we think it's worth 90. You know, we could pay 75. But that's how it perpetuates that inequality as well. Because, you know, if I'm making 60, 75, wow, that's a 25% salary increase. That sounds great. But, you know, if the employer felt like it was worth 90 and was willing to pay 90 or even 100, wow, did I really get messed over in this process? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know what you're going to pay people, so why even ask? I, I just feel like that, that question is created to screw us over, you know? Totally agreed. And it's interesting because, you know, again, in some states, it's illegal to ask that question now. Uh, but in states where it's not, you will often even see it, you know, like if you ask candidates to fill out an application as part of the process, you'll often see it, you know, on the application. What are you currently making? Yeah, we have a lot of work to do around the hiring process and debiasing that. And I, I'm, I'm at the point now where I look at these job postings. I'm like, why, why do they have to have a bachelor's degree for this? It just doesn't it doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, a lot of the things that we're doing. And we're doing it poorly and we're stigmatizing our own potential employees while also trying to fight stigmas. So we should really not be waiting for for-profit and, and you know corporates folks to lead the way in this. We have a moral obligation to model the way for them. Mm-hmm. You know, often we're just waiting for, you know, Coca-Cola or FedEx or somebody to do it before we do it. We we need we need to get out in front of that as a sector. Yeah, I I could not agree more. We so often, as employers, are out recruiting prioritize credential over skill. So it's like, oh, this you know this person has a bachelor's degree. Well, do they really need a bachelor's degree in order to be a caseworker? They need some skills, and you need to make sure they have those skills. But do they really need the bachelor's degree? Probably not. Probably not. The other thing I love about posting salary ranges, it. Kevin, I've always felt like it also helps people make informed life decisions. And so, you know, if I'm thinking about, you know, maybe I'm going back to school and I'm thinking about, okay, what do I want to study? Well, you know, then I can get a real sense, okay, what might I make with a bachelor's in social work? And, you know, full disclosure, one of my degrees is I have a bachelor's in social work. And I might look at that and go, hmm, I don't know that I can live a decent life on that. Maybe I should look at studying something else. Let me look at some more job postings and see something else that I could study. Yeah. I, well, don't get me started on on how underpaid our social workers are in, in America, because, <laughs> because if you're looking at if you're looking at some of their salaries, it will talk you out of them. And we need more social workers. Um, that's a that's a whole nother uh, soapbox I can, I can very very quickly get on. And so, have you gotten any pushback from? any employers who were posting and now aren't because they're like, yeah, we just, we don't want to be posting salary ranges. Yeah. We didn't get much, but the voices were loud when they were. When we first did that, we had a couple of small nonprofits that said, you know, I, I can't pay $15 an hour to my employees. And, and, you know, our, our response and this did, this rubbed people wrong, but you know, if you can't afford to pay your people a living wage, then maybe you need to rethink your model or rethink your nonprofit. 
if you're not ready to have employees, you're not ready to to serve, you know? Yeah. K- Kevin, real quick, you read my mind. Whenever anyone's like, oh, we, you know, we can't afford to pay a living wage. I think to myself, if your business model is based on exploiting people, you really need to look at that model. Especially in the nonprofit sector. <laughs> Especially. Yeah. yeah. We could get some people like that. And our response was uh, courteous, but but also firm in that. We still, I mean, we still have some big nonprofits that actively go around us. You know, we're the nonprofit association in Memphis. We have 750 nonprofits we work with. And there's there's one organization in particular who who shall remain nameless, who I, I'm on the email distribution list of all the CEOs they work with, where they will bypass and not post their salaries on this CEO list so that, that they will get people to organically distribute it around us, even though our, our job postings are free. Like you don't even have to pay to post if you're a, if you're a registered nonprofit partner with us. And you know, there, there, are, there is some research out there that says that women, people of color, other marginalized groups, if you post the job salary, they might see a job salary as, well, that's too much for me, or I could never get that job because it's above me. The research does exist that, that people use as, as a counter argument. I don't buy that we shouldn't post, you know, so I, I've gotten, I've gotten several, several, um, Hey, we'll look at this research and, you know, I've got my doctorate and I, <laughs> I do like research, but, uh, there's a, there's a moral piece to this that I think really we, we have to think long and hard about. So I have, I have a couple questions for you on that, because whenever I hear, oh, there's research on this, my gut reaction is like, will you please send me the citations? So they uh, actually yes. they actually yeah. send you the citations with the research. It was academic research. You know, uh, there can be research, but there, there, there's, you know, there's evidence and there's values, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you still have to make decisions based on your values. And our values in the nonprofit sector should be to make it as transparent as possible for people to and easy as easy as possible to make decisions for their selves and their families. I will share with you my gut reaction is okay, I bet that research came out of something like the American Enterprise Institute or something like that. <laughs> right. Some really conservative because you know they do academic research too. And and mm-hmm. yeah, full disclosure, my econ professor ended up becoming their chief executive, um, and now is like a weird lifestyle guru. Yeah, so Arthur Brooks is now some weird lifestyle guru promoted by Atlantic Monthly. Uh, he was a great economics professor. I disagree with him on everything that involves um, politics and human rights and treating people right. decently, decently. <laughs> but he was a great econ professor. But I could 100% see like an organization like that producing research that says, oh, you know, no, there's a DEI reason for us not to disclose this. But it, it feels awfully specious to me. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, and and you have to consider the source and consider where things are coming from, um, and this is why organizational values matter so much too. Because if the research is telling you something that might hit you, strike you wrong, or not necessarily align with your client's lived experience or your staff's lived experience, you can fall back on the organizational values, which I have done in you know in this job and previous jobs. It's so important to have values, you know, undergirding everything that you're, you're doing in, mm-hmm. your, in your organization. So a um, couple things then that you've done, you've got a minimum wage, you know, so essentially any employer that's not paying at least 15 bucks an hour can't post, and they need to post a salary range. Anything else you've done that maybe has been on the cutting edge around job postings on your board? Hmm. Um, not yet, but 
we've looked into but have not yet purchased. There is actually um, uh, software now that you know we're we're living in a cool cool technological era that you can put your job descriptions through, or you could put other text through, and it will debias your uh, job descriptions. It will, you know, call out like specific words that might be too heteronormative or too, you know, uh, male dominant or white dominant. I can't remember the, the, that particular website we looked at, but I think there's multiple like that out there that, that you can purchase. So if you're putting out a lot of job descriptions, you're a big organization, it's something to consider mm-hmm. um, because, you know, people have uh, natural inclination or disinclination to apply for something based on whether or not they see themselves in that. And, and language is very charged, especially these days. Mm-hmm. And we have a very quick reaction to that is not for me. And that is not, that is not for my family. And that is not for my uh, race. That is not for my gender. That is not for my sexual orientation. And we have to be very conscious of that as we go forward. So that, that who knows, that might be the next thing we're we're, we're tackling, but if we don't tackle it, hopefully somebody else does and we'll, we'll follow their lead. It's really exciting that you're thinking about doing that. I, I had a feeling that question was going to elicit, well, here's what we're looking at doing. And that's, that sounds really exciting. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. Ask me next year and we'll, we'll see where we are on that. I love it. I love uh-huh. it. I love it. So Kevin, let's shift and talk about employee benefits. Sure. Sure. Like I said earlier, we're in the middle of the great resignation. We should be thinking about benefits anyway. Um, as, as nonprofits, we are in a competitive market right now and everybody's hiring and, and we're, we're also up against, uh, you know, government jobs that have pensions. And I, I don't even know what a pension is. I've worked in nonprofit 20 years. So, (laughs) you know, I, I will probably never know what a pension looks like. We're competing with corporations who have stock options. And so we have, we have opportunities to add benefits to our, our benefits package. Some of them don't even cost money. So one thing that we did in, in Momentum, I kept reading about flexible time off. And I saw, it, I saw it originally as unlimited time off. And that sounded very scary to me as an employer. Um, but really doing the research on what flexible paid time off is. And I want to I preface this by saying this is not something that every nonprofit organization can do, especially with emergency assistance, things like that, where you, you're, you know, but organizations that can should consider it. We have a flexible paid time off policy at our organization. I got really tired of having to keep track of everybody's two weeks off. Um, I also don't know that two weeks off is enough uh, at this point. We're, I mean, we're, we're now in, in the throes of four day work week conversations in, in America right now. So, you know, do we need to have all these restrictions on when people can take off my COVID that I had last year? Uh, I couldn't schedule that. And my mom's cancer surgery, I couldn't schedule that. And, you know, uh, my doctor, uh, I have to wait about three months to get an appointment with my doctor for a physical life is happening. And it's and COVID has woken us all up to the fact that life is happening and work work life balance is not even has not been a American value for quite some time. Um, So what we did when we actually did this way before COVID, we did this, I think, in 2018 at Momentum, we allowed people 
the opportunity to take as much time off as they want. And it really did work for our organization because we're very, we're a very interdependent staff. So if one person is not there, it does affect the entire team. But the team agreed that if one person is out, everybody else will cover for, the, for them. So there's a built-in peer pressure there not to take too much time off. If you leave, if you leave stuff hanging, I'm probably going to have to jump in and take care of it. My office manager is going to have to jump in and take care of it. So as long as you are planning ahead and, and life does happen, you lose people in your life, there, you know, accidents happen. But but if you want to plan a vacation, go ahead and plan your vacation. Take two vacations, you know, take care of yourself, make sure your work gets done. But we really want to let adults adult. You made it into a very uncomplicated process. People are taking uh, some people are taking a little more time off. Some people are taking about the same as they were. Um, but we, we do require people to take at least two weeks off. Um, but we also give people off at Christmas, uh, between Christmas Eve and New Year's. We take a, a, a week off at, at Thanksgiving. So we have a, a lot of time off for our, for our folks. But employee motivation and morale, I don't have the specific data, but I can tell you anecdotally, it, it completely changed our culture it has been so good for our retention. Uh, I think our retention rates are a little bit higher than, than our sister organizations across the South because of that one benefit. But there, there are ways that you can incorporate, you know, time off or sabbaticals. Sabbaticals is another big topic, not only for CEOs. You, you know, there are organizations out there that if you work seven years at an organization, you get a month off, uh, no matter whether you are, you know, ground level or C-suite. Um, so there, we have to completely rethink how we're offering benefits. And if you're not offering any benefits, you're not offering health insurance. You know, uh, I know health organizations that don't really offer health insurance for their for their seven eight employees. You know, if you don't have maternity leave built in to your policies and procedures, you need to rethink. You need to reassess your life and your organization mm-hmm. at this point. Now's a, a great time to have a human resources committee, have a, you know, have these conversations about benefits, make your organization competitive, but also with these benefits, it builds culture. We have a we have a very um, different sense of culture than we did five years ago because of this flexible pay time off. And it's part of our culture now. It also made people uh, interact differently at, at our at our office in a, in a very positive way. And so I'll share with you, at Successful Nonprofits, we, this is our experimental year. We're experimenting with unlimited time off. Mm-hmm. And so far it's working. And it's actually working really well. And it's neat because we feel free to actually schedule vacations knowing that if we get COVID, a family member gets sick, whatever, you know, family member passes away, we still have the time off. So it's not like, oh, I need to make sure I always have two weeks set aside in case I have a personal or family emergency. Um, we we also, um, by the way, I, I, I've taken one sabbatical before um, and I'm now in my seventh year at Successful Nonprofits and next year I'm going to take a two-month sabbatical. And and that's going to end up kind of as our policy is like after seven years, you're eligible for a two-month sabbatical. And we've talked about whether or not it should be five years. But from my perspective on sabbaticals, I really believe it's got to be at least two months long. Like a month is barely enough time to catch your breath. But, you know, like like you're just getting into the rhythm of your sabbatical and it's like, congratulations, your sabbatical's over. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. And and bereavement leave is something that we need to rethink, too. Um, especially you know, after COVID, I, there are so many people I know that lost people close to them in, in COVID. I, I was very fortunate not to. But uh, three-day bereavement leave, like, let's... 
rethink that. You're going to get over your mother's death in three days. You're going to you're going to be able to take care of her, you know, uh, her estate and her funeral arrangements after three days. Some of these policies are so antiquated. Just thinking mm-hmm. about making our policies human centered and having empathy um, and not thinking like an economist. Mm-hmm. Sorry, economists out there. <laughs> but, <laughs> there, you know, I, I, I took an economics class in my doctor, doctoral program, and I, I just kept feeling like everybody was being reduced to being numbers, you know, and, and we can't do that. And there are there are great economists out there who are who do not do that. But there is a there is a sentiment on, you know, TV news, when you get the economist on, uh, especially with with partisan networks that will uh, reduce everybody to numbers without emotions and feelings and families. And, mm-hmm. and we ha- we cannot be that in the nonprofit sector. So I-, I will share with you 20 plus years ago, I think 22, maybe 23 years ago, I had started a new job. I literally had been there five weeks and ended up in the hospital for a week. And mm-hmm. my liver and kidneys were shutting down. So I ended up, yeah, it was kind of serious. I ended up in the hospital for a week. And um, came back from that, and six weeks later, my dad died. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, and I, I, I took another week off. And obviously, you know, when you start a new job, you know, every employee manual that I've ever seen is like, you know, you're not eligible to take time off, you don't accrue time, et cetera. The organization covered me. You know, the organization paid paid my salary. They were never like, okay, well, if you leave in the next year or two years, we're going to ask for this money back. Um, they just They just covered me. And, you know, I mean, I was not there a terribly long time. I was there about three and a half years. But even to this day, I'm just I'm just so grateful for like the support mm-hmm. and knowing, okay, you know, I, I could take care of myself and I could take care of my needs and not feel like I was indebted to them forever, right. but still feel really grateful for it. Mm-hmm. Imagine how long you have lasted at that job if they had said, you, you know, you've used up all your sick time and you're, you've, you know, so you're going to have to, we're not going to pay you <laughs> for, for any more time that you need off. Or, or, or honestly, you know, I mean, at the end of th- three days after my dad died, like I was still crying all the time mm-hmm. or like, or, you know, for the end of three days, if they're like, well, Dolph, you know, we gave you your three days. Yep. It's time, yep. it's time to mm-hmm. come back in. I mean, that just, I, I would have probably would have resigned. I probably would have been like, no, mm-hmm. sorry, I can't, I can't come back in. So I do think you're right. We need to be rethinking those types of policies as well around bereavement and around sabbatical and really, you know, how we're, how we're supporting and supporting people. So the benefit that I really harp on a lot, and you mentioned it, but I just want to stop and chat about it for a second, is the retirement benefit. Mm-hmm. Because I am so sick and tired of seeing nonprofits that say, oh, oh yeah, we have a 401k or we have a 403b, but you've got to contribute 3% and then we'll match that 3%. And, you know, that's a great benefit for the, mm-hmm. for the highest paid people in the organization. That's not such a great benefit for the person who's making $45,000 a year because 3% is a lot of money for them. 3% could be half a month's rent. It could be two months groceries, like it, it, it's something real. And so from my perspective, I, I really think it's incumbent on nonprofit organizations to not just offer a retirement plan, but to say, you know, we're going to evaluate this at the end of every year and we're going to decide what percentage we can put in. Is it going to be 3%? Is it going to be 5%? If we have a really amazing year with a lot of unrestricted revenue, maybe it's 8%, but we're going to decide what we can put in, no match required. Because because then we're actually showing concern, not just for you now, while you're an employee of ours, but we're concer- we're showing concern about future you in 30 years or 50 years. I, no, I, I love that idea. I think that is a really important conversation to have. But I also, I, I know organizations don't even have a retirement 
they've never even considered it. Um, and there, there, there are so many retirement plan places out there that will waive fees and, you know, startup fees to, to make it more attractive for smaller nonprofits to, to even set one up. But yeah, the, the, the contributions really need to be reevaluated because I can certainly, I can certainly put more of my money in than some of my employees who make less than me. I don't have kids either. Uh, I'm in a double income, no, no kid house, you know, so uh, you know, I, I have lots of advantages that other people might not have. And I, uh, remember being in an organization as a young 25 year old and they had a retirement fund and, uh, I was making $25,000 a year. And I, but I, I like my family burned it into my brain. You have to start saving now because, you know, basically you'll die destitute and broke because we're, we're not a family of money. We, you know, we, you're not getting an inheritance. So you better, you better start thinking about this now. So I, I kept contributing. And then the next week, um, after I had made this commitment that was going to come out of my paycheck, they came back and they asked me to contribute back to the organization, uh, like a weekly um, gift as an employee to show that show, to show my commitment to the organization and uh, at the time, I felt obligated because everybody else was, and they all made more than me. And now I look back and I'm like, wow, wow. <laughs> uh, I don't need to contribute. I'm contributing to the organization by making $25,000 a year, you know, when I can go work at uh, corporate, corporate headquarters, uh, making triple that as a 25-year-old with a master's degree. So maybe we reconsider that as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kevin... I'm going to pivot over to the off the map question because um, I know we are running out of time and I've promised you we're going to be off uh, off the Zoom line at a certain point in time. I know that your organization has the Mid-South Nonprofit Conference coming up sometime in the next year. And I know you're located in Memphis, so I have a very important question. When our friends and our listeners are coming to the Mid-South Nonprofit Conference, what are a couple restaurants in Memphis they have to make sure they go to? Well, you're asking the right person because I am uh, a foodie and I, I don't cook, so I eat out all the time. So I am I will consider myself an expert on, on food in Memphis. So my favorite restaurant in Memphis is called Tsunami. And it's a it's a small restaurant. It's been there 20 something years and it's an Asian fusion restaurant. And I think Asian fusion has kind of lost its meaning in this PF Chang's kind of world, but like it's actual Asian fusion. Uh and it's delicious. And I eat there so often that I, I probably keep them open as much money as I've spent there. Uh, it's, it's, it's small, but you got to get reservations in advance. Any restaurant by Andrew M- Michael, Andrew Michael Kitchen, uh, Hog and Hominy, uh, Great Canary is one of my favorites in Memphis. It has a very interesting menu that it, they kind of try new things there that I, I like trying anything new, small tapas and things like that. One time I think I had like an octopus and jam mm. and that sounds kind of disgusting, but it was one of the best things I'd ever had. And, and so we're known for our barbecue. So barbecue shop is my favorite barbecue in Memphis. It's right down the street from my house. It is uh, yummy, yummy Memphis style barbecue and Texas and North Carolina think they have the best barbecue. I will fight them to the death. Uh, on on that we have the best barbecue in memphis and if you've never tried memphis style barbecue it's it's urgently important that you do we also have this um uh, people not from the south i guess don't eat catfish as much as we do fried catfish uh we have soul fish which is my favorite 
catfish restaurant in in the world um, is the best breading. And I, you know, I, I typically don't eat bottom feeders, bottom feeding <laughs> fish, uh, but it it is delicious and they have great fried okra. And if you're not from the South, it's even better because it's like you get to really try Southern food done right. So, so thank you, Kevin. And I think the real message I think I'm hearing is if you're going to the Mid-South nonprofit conference and you're someone who was watching your cholesterol, just go vegan for like three weeks because the vegan diet has no cholesterol. Go vegan for three weeks before you come because you're going to eat really well, but it sounds like there's going to be some really good cholesterol in there as well. Uh, uh, yeah, you're going to gain a few pounds, um, but you're going you're gonna to leave happy. If, 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 you know, if you don't have a heart attack on the way, on the way out. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. I'm grateful you did. And I'm incredibly grateful that you came on and really shared the importance and the many reasons why it's important for us to be posting pay scales when we post jobs. So thank you. Happy to be here. And thank you so much for asking me. All right, friends. If you want to reach out to Kevin or you want to know more about the work that Kevin and his organization are doing, I want you to go to MomentumNonprofitPartners.org. And that is the URL for Momentum Nonprofit Partners. And while you are there, check out the upcoming events, check out their podcast. They've got a really great podcast. They do it seasonally. And so you can see when they release the new season and download some great episodes. They've got a blog that you should also see and also see what services they might have. If you are in Tennessee, they might be a great association for you to be a member of. Now, also, if you found this episode useful, there are two more that I want you to think about. So the first is episode 219 with Kathleen Duffy. Fill that job with the perfect candidate. So we know part of how you find that perfect candidate is you're transparent. But Kathleen in this episode helps you actually think like a search consultant. So you can go out and find the best candidates for your job. And also consider episode 224 with successful nonprofits very own Lexi Linger, Weird Recruitment Strategies That Work. As Kevin had mentioned, we are having the great resignation right now, and it's really hard to find talent. So sometimes we have to go above and beyond and really kind of dig into those unusual, unorthodox recruitment strategies so that you can find the talent that your organization needs. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And the lawyers make me say it. Because I think I may have mentioned like something is, is required under New York state law. Well, guess what? I'm not an accountant or a lawyer. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. So that was not tax, legal, or accounting advice. That was me just telling you what I understand. So if what you need is tax, legal, or accounting advice, please, please, please reach out to find a licensed, qualified professional who specializes in exactly what you need. If you need a contract reviewed, don't have an employment attorney look at it. If you have an employment issue, don't have a contract attorney look at your employment issue. 